With Lucky Land slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Blog Talk Radio. Good evening, everyone, and welcome to Addiction Treatments That Work. My name is Kenneth Anderson. I'm your host. Our guest tonight will be Dr. Henry Steinberger, a clinical psychiatrist. Clinical psychologist in Madison, Wisconsin, who works with Smart Recovery, and Reverend Raquel Algorin, who is the executive director of the Lower East Side Harm Reduction Center. And Stanton Peel will be by at the end to help close things up for us. Before we start with our guests, I want to do a little plug for our website and our book. Our website is hamsnetwork.org. We are a free-of-charge lay-led support group for people who want to make any positive change in their drinking habits. Our book is called How to Change Your Drinking, A Harm Reduction Guide to Alcohol. You can find it on Amazon.com. It's also, you can find information on hamsnetwork.org slash book. If you want to make a donation, go to hamsnetwork.org slash donate. Now, our first guest this evening is the Dr. Henry Steinberger. He's been on the board of directors of Smart Recovery. Um, he works in Madison, Wisconsin. Henry, how are you doing tonight? Thank you for being on the show. Well, I'm still waiting for spring, but this is Madison, Wisconsin. <laughs> well, we had a nice hailstorm in Brooklyn uh, just yesterday. Well, I don't miss Brooklyn, though I am from Brooklyn, as my accent will give away. Um, oh, I never told you this. I'm from Wisconsin. I moved to Brooklyn. <laughs> oh, my goodness. We've exchanged <laughs> exchanged bodies. Yes. Um, what a coincidence. So what can you tell us about SMART Recovery? What is SMART Recovery? Well, let's first of all note that SMART is an acronym. That is, it stands for Self-Management and Recovery Training, because some people say, well, I might not be smart enough or it sounds too intellectual. No, it's, it's a discussion group that meets to, well, share what's happened during the week and to learn some tools and techniques that have helped people to overcome an addiction and um, I know that this is a harm reduction uh, approach that you're advocating and I am for harm reduction and I use it in my professional work Mm -hmm. but I want to make clear that smart recovery is an abstinence group and um, you know that can get pretty touchy when somebody says uh, smart recovery well I wouldn't have anything to do with it because it's a moderation group and where did they pick that up well people make that mistake all the time Mm-hmm. And um, it's nothing against moderation or or harm reduction. It's just that we want to be clear what we are offering, and we tell people who want to reduce their drinking or moderate their drinking that they're welcome to come and sit in. They might change their mind about their goals. They might mm-hmm. learn something that will help them to moderate their drinking, but we don't want to focus on their issues any more than we want to focus on somebody's um, psychotic behavior or something that's not really within our purview. So let me make that super clear, but also let me point out that abstinence is just the ultimate sort of harm reduction. Yes, I agree with 
I agree with you totally there. Um, our organization says that you can choose your goal, whether it's safer drinking, reduced drinking, or quitting. And many of our people do decide to quit, either for a period of time, long-term, or permanent. And we do ask them if they're thinking about doing abstinence. Also, always look at SMART and other websites. We like people to look at everything that is out there. And there is a lot out there. I'm, I'm going to be doing a presentation later this month for the Wisconsin Psych Association, uh, The Many Roads to Recovery, um, Secular and Science-Based Approaches. Basically, I think, you know, we, we've our, our field has been dominated by a 75-year-old um, group, which I needn't name because they're on every TV show, they're on every um, police drama. There's, you can hardly watch a comedy without mention of that group. Yeah. And, you know, we, we at SMART and the folks at Moderation Management, Life Ring, SOS, and I'm sure the hamsters there at Harm Reduction are really just not getting any play in the media for, well, we can all speculate about what that's about. But mm -hmm. I know I had a very entertaining evening last night. Uh, somebody sent me the Penn and Teller thing uh, that looks at the 12 steps. And apparently, once you get on YouTube and you take a look at that, it leads you from one to another. And while our smart recovery meetings never discuss other groups. That's not our purpose. Our purpose is to learn the tools and techniques that science suggests work, and um, that's about it, and, uh, and apply them in our lives, not to um, in any way disparage other groups. But in my free time, I can turn on my YouTube and watch disparagement to my heart's delight. A lot of it is very funny. And, um, you know, that, that's entertainment. Mm -hmm. Well, I certainly want to respect anyone that's doing a 12-step program and finding it helpful. Um, you know, we don't want to tell you don't do that if it's working for you, but there's so many people, like myself, I went to 12-step programs and I drank more than I ever had before in my life. I nearly died of a crawl after that. and It was not a good fit for me. I needed a different approach. And I'll bet you nobody there said, hey, why don't you try smart recovery? Why don't you try moderation management? Why don't you try something other than us? And the thing is, that if you come to a smart recovery meeting, we, we're more than willing. We link to all the other groups. We even mention, you know, the 12-step groups. But, um, but we don't have – my, my biggest gripe is that we don't have this sort of reciprocity. And I, that's why I say smart recovery is a science-based secular approach to um, getting in, gaining independence from harmful, addictive behaviors. Oh, and smart recovery, by the way, goes more than alcohol. We address any harmful addiction, whether it's a substance addiction or an activity addiction. So we're, we're pretty broad in scope, and we're very open to um, letting people know that we're a very good choice, but we're not the only choice, and we want people to, first of all, choice is what it's about, and uh, I have to say that a lot of people who start out looking for uh, moderation, I, in my practice, I have a lot of people who come to me because I'm the one who doesn't start off saying, oh, you got to do, no, I start out asking, so what do you like about whatever it is you're doing. What's the what's the upside for you? And then we do the cost-benefit analysis. We ask, what's the downside? And mm -hmm. it's amazing how 
little resistance you get when you're not telling somebody what to do. I, I mean, I think the, the greatest scientific discovery in the last few years, uh, last 20 years, has been, and, it, and it's been around actually since the 50s, we, it, it, at which point they called it reactants. You push, it, whatever you're pushing on pushes back. And mm -hmm. now Dr. Miller, you, you know, um, yes, William, William Miller. Miller, certainly has, you know, helped us to see with some very good demonstrations and research that um, most of the resistance or most of, what do we call it, denial. Mm -hmm. <laughs> yeah, the, I mean, it's a great joke. It's not it's just a river in Egypt, but it isn't what people make it out to be. Most denial is iatrogenic. It is caused by counselors who are confrontational. You, you act confrontational, you will generate the denial that you are expecting. You turn into a more empathic, open-ended question answer, a curious listener, and, oh, my clients, almost to a, almost every one of them opens up and tells me what's on their mind and what they are trying to do. I think it's very true, and... Uh Here's another project that uh, we have going at hands right now. We're starting a uh, significant others group, and it's one thing that we want to tell people about also. You know, if you push your spouse or your loved one in one direction, they will push back. And we're trying to uh, bring them some tools from the motivational interviewing approach, which is actually a bit, it's very Taoist, I find it. Very, pardon me, what? Very Taoist. If you've ever uh, studied the Chinese uh, religion of Tao. Oh, Tao, Tao, T-A-O, yeah. Tao. Yeah, um, oh, no, I'm not very familiar with that, though. I have to say that I've, um, I and, and, a, and a colleague of mine, Hank Robb, have been looking into um, what elements of mindfulness and acceptance and commitment therapy would work well in uh, a self-help group and uh you know, it has a Buddhist flavor, but it's not religion. It's very secular. It draws on Kabat-Zinn. Um, I, I find that, you know, a lot of folks have been struggling not to feel cravings, not to feel urges. Well, if you can control your feelings and your thoughts that well, you don't have any problems. But I don't know anybody who can do that. It's almost as hard as changing somebody else's mind. But uh, the ones, the things that you can control are your hands and your feet and your mouth. Mm -hmm. So um, it's a radical change. I mean, yeah, we can look at uh, things like um, dialectic behavior therapy and learn to self-soothe. And there's some very wonderful distraction techniques. And and you know, you can you can always avoid uh, situations that you know trigger. I hate the word trigger. I like cue. When you trigger mm -hmm. something, when you pull a trigger, the bullet is going to fly. When you get your cue on stage and you find the prop is missing, you ad lib. Cue is just telling you what you probably should do, but hey, I can I can ad lib when I get to a cue. So um, I, th I think what I'd like to see happen, and I think the smart folks are very open to it. And you see, that's, that's what I like about them is that they change. We. Their, their goal is to change as science changes, not to keep every dot and jot from 1936 solid, but to change as science advances. So as, they, as it advances, we've figured out, you know, 
smart recovery is very much based on rational emotive behavior therapy. Mm-hmm. You know, the if if you have uh, an emotional problem, it's not because of what's happening to you. It's not um, somebody putting you down. It's your beliefs about somebody putting you down. So change your beliefs. And I studied for a good year in New York, back to New York again, uh, mm-hmm. with Dr. Albert Ellis uh, back in 1991. And it was a great experience. And I am sure that uh, Dr. Ellis, if he were alive today, uh, would say, see, I was wet. He had this very adenoidal voice. He'd say, see, I always told you, acceptance. Self-acceptance is really the thing to do, and you need to accept yourself just as you are, and other people, and the world, too. Well, he had a message of radical acceptance. Mm-hmm. Uh, you're demanding, but his, his approach was to dispute the irrational beliefs, and if you didn't feel it in your heart, then dispute them more vigorously, he'd scream. <laughs> but, uh, well, I, I had a lot of clients who were vigorously disputing and it wasn't changing and then I discovered acceptance and commitment therapy and I discovered hey you know instead of fighting and struggling to control and that's what people do when they drink or use drugs or go go shopping in 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 insane ways they are trying to change their feelings they're trying to get away from their to the feeling of sadness or the feeling of anxiety or the feeling of anger, and it works so quickly and so effectively for an hour or five, and then either you have to keep going or you're back where you started except you're three spaces back from where you wanted to be because now you've you've generated... Um, you're, you've, you've gotten your, 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 your loved ones angry at you, you've gotten your employer angry at you, there's usually some fallout. Maybe maybe you you got a tummy ache that won't go away because your pancreas is saying no more. I mean, there's a there's a such a downside. And the long term approach to changing one's uh, emotions is to stop fighting with them, stop trying to change them, accept that they are there, make a little room in your life for them, and don't let the jumping up and down demons of your anxiety and your depression deter you from your commitment to acting on what you really value in life. So I, as I see it, you're, you're on a bus and you're going in the direction that you value and your demons are saying, no, don't give that lecture at the end of the month. You'll be really anxious. Uh, maybe if you went and you had a couple of drinks before it, maybe then you'd be really, really ready to give that lecture. And my thing is, no, you guys can scream and yell about that all you want. I'm going to take Mr. Anxiety. He's, he got on my bus on my way to where I wanted to go, and he's coming with me, and that's okay. It's a sensation in my body. It's a couple of thoughts. They can, they can come for the ride, and I'm going to continue going the direction I want to go, I value. I don't want it written on my tombstone. He didn't do anything really interesting that he liked, but he sure did fight it out with his anxiety. <laughs> I think it would be much better to have a, an epitaph that said, he pursued what he valued, he, his life meant something, he stood up for what he thought was important. And that's, of course, I can't tell anybody what's important, but that's, that's where I like to, 
pursue things because I know when people are pursuing what they feel is a value, when they stand up for something, then they have a meaningful and richer and fuller life. Notice I didn't say happy. It could be happy. That's a bonus. That's a bonus. That's gravy. You go for the meat. A meaningful, full, rich life. My bet is you'll probably be happier. Um, now, I, now, I battled uh, depression for quite a long time, and it was one of the things that was triggering my alcohol use. I found one of the most useful things was something called thought stopping, where you would see the depressing thoughts start to come in your head, and you would say, stop that thought, think of something else that's not depressing. And that that helped me a lot, and after a while, those thoughts stopped popping up so frequently. Well, I, I, I agree with you. If 12 steps works for you, go with the 12 steps. And if thought stoppings works for you, go with the thought stopping. And I think for some people... You know, for some people, this works, and for some people, that works. And Mm -hmm. I will not discourage it, though I will tell you that the word is, this year just came in from Harvard, when you try not to think about something, you form a mental template of what you don't want to think of, and you compare it to everything that comes into your your, um, relational field, and it just keeps bringing up what you didn't want to think about. So I'm going to say that your theory is, fine if it worked for you, but are you sure it's because when you had that thought, you slammed your hand on the table and said, stop, and you got back to doing what you needed to do, or is it maybe, because in the last year, you've put out a really marvelous book, you've got this organization going, sounds to me like you're pursuing a path in life that you value very much, and I have a strange feeling that once you start doing that, you know, bad thoughts can come and bad thoughts can go, but you don't have a lot of time to get hooked into them. Mm-hmm. What do uh, you think? Those things are certainly helpful. I think what I was doing, you know, it wasn't just thought stopping, but it was actually replacing the negative memory from my past with something positive from my present. And I would put that in my mind instead of this negative thought. I would say, Oh, go away, you old thought from the past, and think about this good thing at the present. Now, that's different. You replaced... Don't think about the pink elephant sitting in the tree. That's hard to do. But Mm -hmm. every time I think about the pink elephant sitting in the tree, I think about my Toyota and the great gas mileage I'm getting. Ah! I just keep replacing it with something that's more salient and more important to me, and lo and behold, I don't have time for the other one. It... I... You you can't you can't not think a thought, but you certainly can put thoughts into your own head, and I think that's why some people find affirmations to be very helpful or coping statements. Uh, I mean, there's a lot of of the old technology. I wouldn't throw it out, but but I'm but I I see a great opening for people to. Well, I always tell my clients I send them a a ten minute guided. Uh, meditation from John Kabat-Zinn and urge them to follow up on it a bit, where they just spend 10 minutes a day focusing on their breathing, not trying to empty their heads, just watching, just being the observer and watching what your mind does, watching the little judge in there, listening to the chattering monkey in the head, and not, and, and every time you catch, your, the, catch yourself attending to it, bring yourself back to your breathing, 
and just learn to, that's something that you can learn to control better, though not perfectly, is your attention. Am I going to put my attention on my breathing, or am I going to put it on that guy who just cut me out on the highway? Well, I could get really angry, or I could say, what a great opportunity to be awake and focus on my breathing and practice mindfulness and watch those thoughts I'm having come. And if they decide to go, that's cool too. I'm not going to push them, but I'm not going to, I'm just not going to fight with my thoughts or my feelings. I'm going to try to radically accept. And by the way, that's really good for cravings and urges. You know, surfing the urge and just accepting that cravings don't mean that you have a terrible problem with addiction. Drinking means you have a terrible problem with addiction. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. The cravings are just effluvia. That's just the stuff that you have that, well, maybe it preceded the drinking before, but if you don't fight with it and you don't give into it, most people say that they go away. I mean, most cravings mm -hmm. come like a wave, they peak, and they die off, unless, of course, you train them to to um, stick around like some whiny little kid. I mean, you know, a kid says, I want some ice cream, and you say no, but you give in after 20 minutes. Now you've trained the kid to whine and cry for 20 minutes. Mm -hmm. <laughs> Next time you held off for a half an hour, you can, you can make your cravings much more virulent by... Um, by holding off and then giving in. I'm not saying you should give in early. I'm saying don't give in to them. That like any little kid, they'll cry. They'll be very loud at first. Maybe they'll be even very, very loud at the second. But eventually, they exhaust themselves, and you could make room in your life to have a whiny kid in your backpack, and he can come along with you, and you don't have to do what the whiny kid in your head says. So... I've also found that, for it. I've also found that fighting fighting them, saying, I'm not gonna drink, I'm not gonna drink is actually a way to make them stick around. Exactly. And it's easier to distract yourself, for example, go sweep the floor, go make tea. Um, and say, I'm going to concentrate fully on making tea. You know, this is a, this is not a mindfulness thing. Concentrate fully on another action that will distract you. Yeah, and distraction, you know, after total radical acceptance, I think distraction is one of the most effective things. And we know that there are certain distractions that are even better than others. I mean, activities that focus your attention, like meta-counting, I'll count every uh, count by fives or count by eights or something like that, or self-soothing or uh, intense exercise is a great distraction, and you burn calories and build up your cardiovascular system. So intense um, progressive muscle relaxation won't cure addiction, but it is a grand distraction. I always say try slow, deep breathing. Blow all the air out, and then take a deep breath and slowly breathe. Because most anxiety is tied up with hyperventilation, so it's not going to stop you from feeling anxious, but it certainly will um, help your uh, chemistry. Um, oh, and ice cubes. I mean, if you're really desperate, ice cubes in the hands or, hey, get this one, um, putting ice water or an ice pack, a whole body dunk would probably be amazing. But just get, especially getting it on your upper face, 
apparently it triggers a parasympathetic response, and people are amazed to find that that's a distraction that lets, leaves them feeling uh, more relaxed. Okay, thank you very much for being our guest. Uh, we're running out of time now for the first guest. I want to tell everyone, you know, that's interested in Smart Recovery, go check out smartrecovery.org online. It's an excellent website, and thank you for being our guest tonight, Henry. Uh, thank you for having me and for telling people more about Smart Recovery. I hope you have a wonderful uh, rest of the show. Thank you. Take care. Okay, we're going to do a little blurb again for the HAMS Network. Um, we are a free-of-charge lay-led support group for people who want to make any positive change in their drinking. We are based on the principles of harm reduction. And uh, our website is hamsnetwork.org. We have a book called How to Change Your Drinking, A Harm Reduction Guide to Alcohol. It's available on Amazon. And you can get more information if you go to hamsnetwork.org slash book. If you'd like to make a donation, hamsnetwork.org slash donate. I'm going to bring our next guest uh, guest on right now. Hello, Raquel. Are you there? Yes, I am. Good evening. Good evening. Welcome to the show. Glad to have you here. Uh, it's a pleasure to have been invited. Thank you. Okay, everyone. Uh, Reverend Raquel Algorin is the executive director of the Lower East Side Harm Reduction Center in uh, New York City. And uh, it offers many harm reduction services, needle exchange, many more services. I'm going to ask you first, why do we need to have needle exchange? Why is needle exchange a good thing? Well, first of all, uh, you know, a little bit of uh, history, a little bit of a background. You know, um, back before we even um, came to be in the United States, harm reduction in general here, uh, here um, is what I mean. Um, there was harm reduction in Europe. You know, uh, first of all, before even HIV, there were a huge amount of individuals who were injection drug users who had uh, developed hepatitis C. You know, it was mm -hmm. a huge epidemic that eventually we started seeing the same thing in the United States. And uh, lo and behold, the AIDS epidemic then um, showed itself and uh, we were seeing also uh, an exorbitant amount of uh, substance users in particular, and, um, injectors uh, in particular, who were also getting infected with HIV. And so um, there was a series of uh, interventions that were done in those days that were first illegal. Um, you know, underground syringe exchange came to, to be um, and it was because there was there were desperate times, you know, there wasn't very much that was being done to help avoid um, the infections that were occurring uh, among injectors. So ACT UP New York is, is uh, credited with um, giving communities the, the tools and the information and the the empowerment, you know, to reach out to our our neighbors. Uh, who were again um, at very very high ri high risk of um, of being infected, uh, particularly with syringes. Uh, the City Department of Health uh, had, had tried um, began a trial of sorts, you know that wasn't very successful. And the reason for that was because it wasn't in the community. You mm -hmm. know, 125 Worth Street and 
what we used to call in those days Justice Canyon wasn't necessarily a favorite place for folks to go and find syringes in those days. Mm-hmm. Um, so the bottom line was that it became a community initiative where uh, not only ACT UP, but all the members of the community who were concerned uh, about um, the uh, amount of drug use that was happening, but more than anything, the methods that people were using that were putting them at risk. Um, and um, I got involved. Um, I was an employee of the Department of Health doing community outreach on the Lower East Side, and I got involved by first you know, observing and educating myself about what it was all about, and then eventually became a part of the organization. Um, And I'm still there. Okay. Um, Yeah. Okay, uh, but uh, Lower East Side, the Harm Reduction Center, does more than needle exchange, don't you? What are some of the other services that you do? Absolutely. You know, that's one of the the myths uh, about... Uh, syringe exchange programs. You know, there are there are 17 of us in New York at this point, and um, quite often people ask, you know, why don't you uh, send people to treatment? Why don't you help them stop? You know, there's a lot of the questions that come from the community, and what we said to them is that, you know, not everybody is ready to stop using right mm-hmm. away. Um, that there are a lot of other issues also that are going on in their lives that might be the priority. And so um, our programs are set up to provide everything from mental health services, case management services. Uh, We engage folks in a lot of uh, uh, support groups of various kinds. Uh, We also see people who are already HIV positive, and so we provide very specific HIV services for them. Um, in, In our case, you know, we have a psychiatrist, uh, part-time, who also prescribes buprenorphine. So we make, in cases where it's appropriate, treatment um, uh, treatment as it's being demanded, you know, by 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 our participants. We use the word participant rather than client, just to clear that up. Mm-hmm. Um, and um, you know, we we see a lot of people coming through our doors. We have very extensive outreach activities. Um, we almost every day of the week, our, our outreach teams are out in the street, uh, talking to people, delivering the message, you know, of the services that we have to offer. But also for those who are still not ready to come into our program, you know, we also are doing street-based syringe exchange and also uh, doing intakes and, and informing um, users that of all the services that we have available to them. Okay. You mentioned buprenorphine. I don't, maybe some of our listeners don't know what that is. Yeah, buprenorphine is um, you know, relatively new um, uh, treatment uh, that makes it a lot easier for some folks to, to, to live a life that's not tied to, you know, having to go to a program. Let's say, you know, I mean, obviously there are a lot of options uh, that people can choose from. One is methadone, which is the most uh, well-known. But then with buprenorphine, you know, it's an anti-opiate that is prescribed. You know, it's pills that an individual can get a prescription and and control, 
you know, their own, the, the rest of their lives in a way where they're not tied to having to go to, um, you know, to, to get uh, their treatment early in the morning and then, you know, have a certain other task that, they're, they're, um, um, that, that are connected to that particular type of program, uh, but rather, you know, they can uh, be a little bit more independent. Um, you know, there are people who are on buprenorphine, you know, who work a full-time job or, you know, have the opportunity to, um, you know, spend more time um, doing, you know, kind of quality things that can enhance their their life and that can enhance their uh, relationships, et cetera, with their family. Um, and so it's something that uh, we started doing um, a couple of years ago and, uh there are a number of programs now that are providing buprenorphine. Uh, the issues that come up with that is that, you know, it is a prescription, and so, um, you know, we try to also connect people with uh, insurance if they don't have it so that they can have the um, uh, access to the medication. And then there's also follow-up. They have to return. Um, you know, they continue to receive psychotherapy, continue to see the, the psychiatrist, uh, so that they can, uh, uh, you know, we check in with them to see if still they're they're motivated. You know what differences in their lives are occurring. You know now that they're on this treatment, um, and um, you know just to make sure that that um, you know they continue to receive support. Mm-hmm. Speaking of support, do you have any groups that operate uh, at your center? Yes, we do. Uh, we have a number of groups. Com- considering that we have a small space, as as, as you well know, um, we have a relatively small space. But um, we have a number of programs. We have a men's group. We have a women's group. That's actually one of the longest running groups um, in in our agency. Uh, we also have a peer education program. Uh, we have a harm reduction group. Um, And then sometimes there are impromptu groups also that happen depending on the availability of a staff person, you know, to facilitate. facilitate. But, you know, we encourage uh, creativity, you know. We give people an opportunity Mm -hmm. to give us feedback and let us know what their needs are. So a lot of these groups have surfaced because uh, participants have have said, you know, we would love to have a group where we can discuss A, B, or C. And if we can do it, we will definitely uh, help them set that up. Okay. Do you do anything with overdose prevention? Yes, overdose prevention. In New York City, um, in case your your population, your listeners haven't might not have heard yet, uh, it is now legal for individuals to be trained um, in overdose prevention. What that means is that, you know, generally when someone overdoses, the first thing that most people would do is call an ambulance. Sometimes in the time it takes for an ambulance to show up, you know, it may be that that individual either, um, you know, will not survive or um, that they might actually, you know, not be receiving the proper um support um so you know usually what people do is you call 911 and you let them know 
that you know somebody has there's a suspicion that somebody has overdosed. Ambulance shows up. You know we never can predict how much time that takes. So now in New York City, um, we are capable of training individuals through the authorization of the state, the the City Department of Health. Uh, we are able to train individuals, citizens, um, on how to um, recognize an overdose and how to administer the treatment, which is Narcan, uh, that can be injected. And in some cases, um, you know, there is also intranasal uh, Narcan that can save a life. But prior to that, we show people how to check, you know, vital signs and how to make sure they understand, you know, when someone is in overdose um, and, and take some action. And uh, throughout, the, throughout the city, all of the syringe exchange programs, and a lot of citizens have been trained through our programs to uh, administer, to carry and administer uh, Narcan. Okay. Uh, I want, do you still do acupuncture there? Yes, we do. As a matter of fact, we're doing more now than we, we've done uh, in the last couple of years. We have uh, an opportunity to provide ear acupuncture, uh, which is also known as auricular acupuncture, that is um, a treatment for individuals who are either in recovery and want to maintain their recovery, uh, but also for individuals who are kind of hanging, you know, from one side to the other, not sure yet if they want to stop using, but, you know, would like to participate in something that helps them stay relaxed. Um, you know, it is, it is also a detoxification treatment. Um, I'll explain. The, there's, it's a five-needle, um, sterile needle, I have to add, because people always want to know. It's mm-hmm. a five-needle treatment where um, you you place two needles in areas of, uh, at the top of the, each ear. Uh, one of them is called the spirit point, and the other one is for re- relaxation. And then three other points that help detoxify the liver, the kidneys, and the lungs. Um, and the treatment lasts 45 minutes. It's complete, completely free. And in our situation, it is. Um, you just have to register as a client, and you have full access to that and also to a practice called Reiki. Uh, we have a volunteer who's been with us for a couple of years. I'm, I'm also a Reiki practitioner myself, mm-hmm. um, and it's energy work. It's hands-on energy work uh, that lasts anywhere from uh, half an hour to an hour, depending on the individual, and to get, who gives also, again, the individual um, uh, receiving it an opportunity to relax, you know, to uh, kind of get away from stress for a while. Um, depending how often the individual accesses the treatment, you know, they, they start to feel a sense of well-being and, uh, you know, more um, connected to uh, to themselves and to the people around them in a positive way. Okay, so you certainly do a lot more than just needle exchange there. Um, we sure do, and I, we've been trying to explain that sometimes to folks in 
in the community, you know, from the time that we started. It, it's always, you know, it, it seems to be less and less of a, a, a lack of knowledge. It's, uh, you know, sometimes people hear needle exchange and, and immediately think that we're helping to facilitate um, or encourage people to continue to, to use drugs. And, and you know, what, what our mission is to reduce the spread of HIV and any other harms that may be caused by uh, the use of syringes and other substances. Uh, and that's the bottom line. That's who we are. Do you feel that um, if people can get engaged in something that's easy, like it's a needle exchange, that they can be more encouraged to pursue things like maybe quitting later on down the road? Maybe what? I'm sorry? Maybe uh, quitting their addiction later on? Do you find that this yeah, is Yeah, I mean, you know, one of the most in, uh, requested uh, referrals that we hear is drug treatment. Mm-hmm. You know, so um, some people, as soon as they walk through the door, might might be looking for that. There are others who you know, go have to go through a process, you know, to kind of figure out, and we work with them to figure out if they're ready and what form of drug treatment is support of, um, uh, appropriate for them and their situation. So, you know, we, we do refer people quite often to, to detox and very often to drug treatment. And sometimes it, you know, may not work the first time for them, but we continue to work with them, you know, until there's a, a possibility that down the line they may be really ready to commit to to remaining in treatment. And uh, and sometimes folks come, come back and, you know, they let us know how they're doing and we continue to offer, you know, the, uh, some of our uh, services such as psychotherapy and so forth to, to help them maintain um, free of the substance. Okay. Um, well, I know you told me, but uh, you're not originally from the United States, correct? You're from... Uh... Well, I was born in Puerto Rico, which is mm-hmm. part of the United States. It's just a little further away. Okay. Um, but, yeah. It's not one of <laughs> but, the yeah, I was, I was born in Puerto Rico, and uh, my parents... Uh, actually, my father was in the Army for 20-something years, and... My mother, uh, he he convinced my mother to finally leave Puerto Rico and come to the state so that we would be closer to him. Uh, so I've been in the city for since I was let me say since I was four years old. Mm-hmm. I'm 57 years old now. I live on the Lower East Side as well, and you know my commitment to my community is what's helped me. Uh, you know what's what brought me to harm reduction and to. Um, you know, to HIV prevention. I lost my brother in 1989 to HIV, and I, you know, made a commitment that I would work as hard as I could to help prevent others from going through uh, what he and so many others that we've lost have gone through. That's a very excellent commitment to make. Yeah. (laughs) Thank you. And uh, you, you became, did you become a nurse first, was that? Um... Yeah, um, actually I went to a, a vocational high school. High school, mm-hmm. and I'm not even sure if those exist mm-hmm. anymore, but it was a great opportunity, you know, to um, start really early. I went to Julia Richmond High School um, in, up in Midtown, 
and uh, mm-hmm. graduated as a licensed practical nurse. I was 18 years old. And um, at the first job that I had was in a nursing home here in the neighborhood. Um, and um, I, I actually was told to lie because they thought that w- I wouldn't be believed, <laughs> you know, that I was a nurse because I was, I was a kid. But um, it was a great opportunity. A lot of my friends did the same things, you know, came out of, of various high schools that taught nursing. And, uh, you know, I still maintain my license. I, I worked in the um, at what today is known as Ryan Nina uh, Health Center. In those days it was called Nina Health Center. I worked mm-hmm. there a number of years as a community clinic. And then I also worked for uh, Gouverneur Hospital in this nursing facility as well as... Um, as I said, the New York City Department of Health eventually. And it was working. And, uh, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Please go ahead. No, I was going to say that, you know, that all of those roads took me eventually to what I'm doing now. Yes, it was uh, working in the Department of Health. That was what initially got you involved with the harm reduction programs, wasn't it? Yeah, yeah. I, I actually didn't know anything about harm reduction when I first started working that that was in 1989 that I started working for the Department of Health. And my, my job was to do community education, you know, HIV prevention education. And um, so I, I would meet with various um, nonprofit organizations in the neighborhood and, and do presentations for the staff. And um, and then eventually I, I created a, a group called the Lower East Side AIDS Strategy Group mm-hmm. that brought all of us together to work collectively um, so that we could reach um, more people in the community. And we also began to uh, plan activities, events in the community that were large events, you know, so that we could uh, attract masses of people to to get the information. And we would give out um, uh, not only information, but we had uh, music and, you know, kind of a family atmosphere uh, with the bottom line being educating the, as many people as possible about what was going on. And um, we also we used to uh, organize special events such as Women's Day of Pampering and um, we would have uh, at St. Augustine's Church, which is also in the neighborhood, we would have big... Uh, presentations and and um, speakers events that kind of thing and so you know we we um, we were we were a force in those days you know without any money it was mm-hmm. all about you know bringing what we knew to to the plate and um, organizing ourselves and organizing with other members of the community as well you know who began to know us and welcome us and um were able to get people to these events so that they could uh, benefit from what we had to offer. Was needle exchange still illegal when you started doing it? Oh yes. It definitely was. Um as I said, you know, when I first met folks from Act Up, I was actually I, I always say that I was brought kicking and screaming by a friend of mine because mm-hmm. you know, he was uh, his name was Juan Mendez and you know may he rest in peace. He was a member of uh, what was called the Latino Caucus of ACT UP. And um, he also used to work at Gouverneur Hospital, 
where I was doing some trainings for their staff as a DOH employee. And so, um, you know, he one day he said to me that um, he was interested in having me participate in this activity um, that, you know, didn't didn't immediately describe what it was or what mm-hmm. it, what it mm-hmm. involved. And so I was curious, and he said, you know, you need to come with me to Tompkins Square Park. Um, you know, the, and then he showed me something that, you know, I kind of felt ashamed because, you know, living in the community, there was there are things that you see sometimes and you feel like, well, that's not my business or I don't need to be involved, you know, with something. Mm-hmm. And I, I realized how much I had really ignored a whole community of individuals who not only were using drugs but were getting infected, uh, had no services, et cetera, et cetera. And that was Tompkins Square Park in those days. It was a shanty town, basically. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, he he said to me that he wanted me to get involved with um, Underground Exchange because no one else in the team that he was working with knew how to speak Spanish. And so that sold me almost immediately, you know, and I said, well, I don't know if this is something I should be doing because, you know, the Department of Health, ACT UP, didn't quite have a, the greatest relationship in those days. Um, mm-hmm. and, but I said, well, you know, all I could do to start with is perhaps observe, you know, and see what it is that's going on. And it just blew me away, you know. I mean, my assumption was that um, I would walk into the park and people would just be, you know, handing needles all over the place. And as a nurse, that it, it was really bothering me. You know, there was this internal struggle of wondering if that was the best way to deal with, with substance use problems. And so anyway, what what I observed um, was that the first questions that were asked were, you know, did you... Uh, go to the doctor, did you take care of that abscess that I saw last week? Um, you know, you asked me to bring you socks, here's a pair of socks. When's the last time you ate? You know, that's what the conversations that I was hearing. And I really felt ashamed, you know, that first of all, having made assumptions and, and at the same time feeling guilty that I, I I felt like I was blind to so much that was going on there. Um, the next day, I invited one of the members, uh, Alan Clear, who today is the executive director of the Harm Reduction Coalition. Um, I invited him to come to our strategy group meeting the next day, and because uh, I wanted others to hear what was going on, you know, from their mouth. And um, it took maybe about ten minutes to do a brief, uh, have him do a brief presentation. And then I pulled out a piece of paper and I said, okay, who's going to volunteer? Who's going to join me? You know, and the rest is history. You know, we, uh, some of us, you know, some people were a little reluctant to say yes right away mm-hmm. because they have to go through their organization, et cetera. But a few people who also lived in the neighborhood said, well, I'll volunteer. I'll do it whenever, you know, I can. And so... um we started going out with a walkabout, which is what it was called. We, st- we still call it that, which is an outreach uh, term. And uh, and um, we grew into this massive uh, group of people who, you know, combination of ACT UP and people in the neighborhood 
uh, who decided that they also needed to be involved. And uh, eventually we opened our, our first phase uh, through some funding from AMFAR, uh, American Foundation for AIDS Research. Mm-hmm. Uh, and uh, I want to say, you know, I, we honor Ms. Elizabeth Taylor, you know, for uh, uh, being one of our champions. Um, so we opened our first space on Avenue C. At uh, first it was on 2nd Street between uh, Avenue B and Avenue C, and then mm-hmm. we opened spaces on Avenue C between 3rd and 4th Street. And we were there until um, 1999 when we had to move because uh, a lot of the, the properties were being um, sold. So mm-hmm. we moved to where we are now, which is 25 Allen Street, uh, right near Canal Street. Oh, okay. I remember also when I started doing needle exchange, I did it because I wanted to learn harm reduction. I wanted to apply it to alcohol. It was quite frightening at first, but, you know, it wound up the needle exchange was one of the warmest places I've ever been at. Well, we're going to have to wind up now, and yeah. thank you so much for being our guest this evening, Raquel. Oh, it's my pleasure, and thank you so much for allowing me to share this information with more people. And if anyone has any questions, please feel free to Go to our website or give us a call at 212-226-6333, and we can give you all the information you want. And also, we're always looking for volunteers. Okay, thank you. Thank I'm going to do another real quick blurb here. The website is hamsnetwork.org. Our book is How to Change Your Drinking, A Harm Reduction Guide to Alcohol. I see Stanton Peel has joined us. Stanton, how are you? It's good to talk to you, Ken. Another fascinating evening. Of course, I know of Henry Sternberger for a long time. We've emailed over the decades. Um, I'm a very close colleague with Tom Horvath, who's the director of Smart Recovery, and it became uh, he was on the board of my treatment program. Um, and once again, I'm just struck by uh, people might wonder the Sternberger client base would seem to be a little bit more perhaps middle class and organized and uh, Reverend Raquel was talking about a more underprivileged group so I'd just like to remind everybody what draws this all together uh, on your broadcast and it's about having a diversity of approaches, a panoply of approaches to reach people where they're at. It involves getting beyond the 12 steps as our neat jerk response to every time anybody mentions addiction it's it's inappropriate for Henry's clients, it's inappropriate for Reverend Raquel's uh, clients as well it means recognizing more than abstinence it means giving people choice which empowers them and which begins to give them some control over their life and both of your uh, guests mentioned that can lead to abstinence, that beginning in some way to discuss alternatives is the first step sometimes to going all the way to completely overturning an addiction. I, one thing that really struck me is that both uh, Mr. Sternberger and uh, Raquel mentioned introducing positives into people's lives, mm-hmm. um, giving people initiative in terms of Reverend Raquel. She talked about you know allowing them to suggest what they need and I, I was very struck by her talking about teaching people about acupuncture and also preventing overdose to allow people to save lives. Isn't that, isn't that kind of a critical thing? Doesn't mm-hmm. that point out some of the greatest hypocrisy in America? 
that people might recoil at the idea that her center trains people to perform emergency overdose treatments because otherwise people would die. Mm -hmm. If you can't get behind the idea that that's worthwhile, then I don't think you're in the right business for dealing with addictions. And um, Henry mentioned, uh, you and he had a very interesting discussion where you were talking about reframing, you know, or just to use, or negative thoughts in the case of depression. And Henry made, I thought, a stunningly important point that having an overall positive purpose in life, having something to go forward with, is often the greatest guarantee that you'll overcome or replace the vicissitudes or the negatives in life. And uh, Reverend Raquel mentioned that as well, you know, relating to people who in some cases don't have a lot of positives to allow them to begin to develop positives in their lives. And so if there was one unifying theme I would want listeners to take away from tonight's podcast, it's the idea of generating positive options, helping people to generate positive options, sometimes out of their own initiative, and helping them to find meaning and purpose and direction in their life. And really that ties in to Henry and Reverend Wickell as well. It's it's great the kinds of people, the quality of people you're bringing on, Ken. It's fabulous. It's fascinating to hear them. And I like the way you explore with people, you did it last week as well, how they get interested in these topics. Mm-hmm, because mm-hmm. they're examples of people who have somehow gone beyond, you know, Reverend Raquel talked at great length about how she had a discover in herself and urge to help her own community. Because to come to the realization that there are alternatives for treating addiction uh, beyond the 12 steps, beyond abstinence, takes an effort of will to go beyond what everybody else is hearing and what everybody else is doing. And the people you have on, they're original people, they're motivated people, they're creative people, they're committed people, they're human people. And uh, I think if your show does nothing more than to allow people to get some insight into the kind of human beings who are motivated to explore alternatives and to develop a good feeling about them, that alone should open up this field to the value of other approaches. And, of course, Ken, that goes for you as well, that you're uh, uh, leading the way to allowing them to speak, and that you yourself have come in that direction. Thank you. All right, I think uh, it's time to wind up. Uh, everyone, please come back next week when our guest will be Melanie Solomon, who is the author of AA, Not the Only Way, and Terry Morris, who works with the Speed Project in San Francisco, which does harm reduction with meth with gay men. Thank and uh, Ken, what, uh, what's Ham's produce? What's what's Ham's up to lately? What are you doing over your network? What uh, what special oh. initiatives have you been reaching out for? Our brand new thing. I, I was going to send you an email about this. I haven't sent it yet. Our brand new thing. Uh, we are working on a program for uh, loved ones, friends, and family of people that use substances. We call it Harmless. As an, if you uh, Google search Al-Anon Alternative, uh, you can find it. The new web page is just up. Um, we are talking about ways to reduce the harm that your loved one's drinking causes in your life, uh, approaches to talk to your loved one based on motivational 
doing instead of confrontation, uh, cognitive behavioral strategies that you can use to make yourself feel better and tolerate. And also, you know, if it's necessary that you have to leave the situation, if you sometimes that's the only way out, but we will support anyone in what they need to do to make their life better uh, in relation to their loved one's substance abuse. It's a, it's a critical aspect of any addiction to look at the overall social group and family that they're a part of because all elements fit into and have to play a role. It's a great show again, Dan. Thanks for having me on. Thank you very much. Good night, everyone. With lucky landslots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.